Hello and welcome to Winning Retail. This episode features a presentation by your host, Tony Saldana, from the Power of One Virtual Summit hosted by One World Sync. On this episode, Tony talks about the five stages of retail transformation, how businesses of all sizes can adjust to the new normal, and the importance of perseverance when experiencing a major retail disruption. Enjoy. This podcast is presented by Dell Technologies and Intel. Together, we help you realize digital transformation across retail by driving IT innovation to better engage with today's connected consumer. Learn more at dellteknologies.com slash retail and intel.com slash retail. Hi, my name is Tony Saldana, and uh, thank you for inviting me today in the midst of the pandemic, which is around us. And um, I thought I would start with the pandemic because it's all on our minds. I'm sure that nobody six months ago in the right mind would have predicted that we would be having Zoom conferences instead of board meetings and that comedians like Conan O'Brien would be hacking into leadership meetings and telling their CEOs that they are new to the company, but you know they just called in to let them know that the company has lost direction. So all kinds of fun stuff happening around us. But you know what? It's a new world. But every new crisis is an opportunity. And that's really what I want to focus on today, which is for our world of retail, what is the opportunity and what can we do to be among the best at taking, grabbing hold of that opportunity? So before I jump in and talk about retail and digital transformation and what you can do, I just want to kind of share a little bit of context on why I consider this to be the biggest opportunity of our lifetimes. See, among other things, I study retail as well as economic crises. I know they're not necessarily related, but there you go. And I've had the opportunity to study you know, economic crises going back, you know, the Russian economic crisis of the uh, late 80s, the ASEAN crisis, China, and of course, the great economic crisis of 2008. And what I have found is that there are four stages to most responses. And I'm here to tell you that we are just at stage two out of stage four. So the first couple of stages are scramble to get everything in place, sustain your uneasy balance during the crisis. But you still have two stages ahead of you. You have the streamline stage, which is when you're going to have to basically find a way to pay for all of the, the money that is being spent because of this unease. And then, of course, eventually, that becomes the new normal, right? And it is during this stage of we're in the, still in the midst of the crisis that you have your biggest window of opportunity. Here's another slide uh, from Bain, which basically talks about what happened 10 years after the great economic crisis of 2008. You start to see in the slide winning companies and losing companies. And here's the important thing. The winning companies started to pull away from the competition during the crisis. They were actually able to increase profitability, grow it, not just hunker down, right? And so the point here is that this isn't necessarily the time just to kind of wait out the crisis. This is the time for you to go drive digital transformation, right? And I wanted to kind of get that up front as a base statement. But then, you know, at the same time, I have another statement that's going to have to, you know, be considered, which is that 70% of all digital transformations fail. And if that's the case, then how do you not waste the opportunity 
that this global economic crisis is giving you. And this is going to be the framework for our presentation here today. So, you know, I have a book, Why Digital Transformations Fail. And in that, I lay out a five-stage model for not falling into the trap of failing at digital transformation. And what I'm going to do, and this is the structure of the presentation, is I'm going to talk about a few key skill sets and disciplines that you're going to need to be successful at each of those five stages, okay? So having set the foundation for the presentation, a little bit of background about myself. I have been in the IT and global business services industry for about 35 years now. I was uh, with Procter & Gamble 27 years across you know, six different countries and a variety of roles. I've had the privilege of essentially growing up with the IT and global business services industry. I set up the first ever shared services in the Philippines in 93, and then I was program leader for outsourcing about two-thirds of PNG's IT and global business services, GBS, in 2003, which was a 10-year, $8 billion deal. And then some acquisitions and divestitures when I was uh, the interim CIO of the Gillette company when PNG acquired them in 2005, and I was given the opportunity to integrate all of their IT and global business services at PNG while keeping PNG's base cost and FTEs the same. And then uh, I led IT and GBS in every region of the world before leaving PNG, you know, a couple of years ago to start a company now that I lead, Transformant. I uh, have the pleasure of working with about 20 of the uh, Fortune 100 companies, boards, and CXOs on uh, digital transformation. While I was still at PNG, I had um, a little bit of an ironic problem to deal with, which is externally we were known to be best in class in shared services and IT. But you always have opportunities. And so the question was, what's next? And because there wasn't a next in the industry, we set about to create a 10x you know, moonshot disruptive innovation factory for the whole industry using PNG. And that's basically the foundation for a lot of what I'm going to talk about, because the kind of work that we did there included looking at things like, why can't we have 100% correct master data? Or why do we still plan the world's supply chains using MRP2, which is really still a stage-by-stage -stage sequential process because you do demand forecasting, demand planning, so on and so forth. And eventually, by the time you do one stage, the other stage is out of sync, right? And we also looked at other capabilities like artificial intelligence to do actually procurement and buying and, and to do accounts receivables and you know, so on and so forth, right? So with that as background, let's talk a little bit about our main topic, which is retail and why I keep saying this is the opportunity of a lifetime for us, right? So I'm going to start, again, using the stage-by-stage -stage foundation. The first one, stage one, is where digital transformation is, is really not what most people would consider disruptive, but it is necessary. This is basically, you know, to be honest, what most IT vendors sell you, you know buy my software, go to the cloud, buy AI, and you're digitally transformed. No, it's basically really just the foundation. You're going from physical to digital, but it's still important as a foundation for the future. And for that, you need two disciplines, committed ownership and iterative execution. Again, in the interest of time, I'm just going to focus on the first one, which is your role and the role of your leaders to basically own digital transformation, right? And here's what I'm going to use as backdrop for this. When you look at what's happening in the retail industry, and it doesn't really matter if you're a Walmart or if you're a mom and pop store, right? you are seeing a few trends. 
The first trend is that you are seeing disintermediation, you know, at a scale that you never thought possible because think of, you know, the hardest things to sell in a vending machine and automobiles would be, you know, top of your list probably. And that's exactly what Carvana is doing, right? The other thing that is happening, just kind of building on this vending machine idea is if you can actually go and buy steak, and I'm, I'm not talking about yesterday sushi, I'm talking about prime, high quality, you know, really, really best steak from a vending machine. Or if you can go in Dubai and quite literally buy gold bars from a vending machine, you know, hey, you know, that's what's happening to retail, okay? The other thing that's happening is less is more. I remember, you know, going down um, an escalator into uh, a subway station in the Czech Republic, and what they have on the wall is basically produce pictures, and you can use your phone to basically shop for your groceries, right? Samsung's doing something similar, where it's opened a flagship store that actually doesn't really have any products, right? The other thing that's happening is basically, and you've seen this during the pandemic, of course, is omnichannel everything, right? So you order at Amazon, and you can pick up not just at Whole Foods, but you know you can return stuff at Kohl's or, or so on and so forth, right? So obviously, retail as we know it is changing. You don't even have to spend time at a retail, including the Nike store in New York, where you basically you know, scan with the barcode the shoe you're trying to buy, and then they will actually bring the shoes to you, right? You're also seeing some major, major change in the world because consumers are asking for radical transparency. You know, they're basically saying, I want to see not just who stitched my clothes, but I want to see which field in the world the cotton for the clothes came from, right? So this is retail in today's world, right? But again, just to kind of share with you that it's not just retail, this is actually a bigger issue because algorithms are now able to shrink product inventories and lead times in supply chains dramatically. Zara, the fashion retailer, actually has only about seven days between coming up with a design for a new fashion and having that fashion available in the store, right? Um, you have Xiaomi, the Chinese cell phone manufacturer, who creates new batches of phones. I'm not talking about software versions. I'm talking about batches every week. You have your leaders, your CEOs, who basically are reading information about how half the jobs in whatever industry is going to be done by hardware or software robots. You have every signal that says this is not business as usual. And I realized that at Procter & Gamble about five years ago when I was dealt with this ironic problem that I talked about. And so I set out to meet about 100 different leaders of consultancies and startups and peer companies and so on and so forth. And among the many questions I kept asking them was, hey, can you tell me what digital transformation is, right? And I'm going to come back to that. But, you know, I'm sharing with you a slide that basically looks like an email. And that is one of the emails that I was going back and forth with the CEO of a small startup, Monolo. And you can see on that email I say, you know, on the 10th of April, hey, I'm out next week. And AJ, the CEO of that company, says, fine, I'll ask Amy, who I assumed was his admin, to go set up a meeting. And then the, the admin comes out with all of the dates. And by now, you're thoroughly confused because you're saying, I thought you were going to talk about digital transformation. Why are you talking about life 50 years ago? Except that 
when you double click on the signature of Amy, you find out that Amy is a robot. Now think about it. When I say on April 10th, I'm out next week, none of the suggestions made by Amy is in that period when I'm out. Look at the date, 2015, five years ago. Ask yourself, which is one of the most important personal jobs in a company? That's probably the admin of the CEO. And yet you have, in this example, five years ago, that job being done by a robot. This drove me to a really important insight at Procter & Gamble, which is that we keep benchmarking ourselves against the wrong people. Large companies benchmark with large companies. We benchmark our master data quality with their master data quality. That is wrong. Our real competition, our companies like this, this was a small startup, that actually are not afraid to try things out, and therefore they have half the cost structure, internal cost structure of operations as large companies. That's what we need to be considering as our benchmark. And, and you already know this because you know Moore's Law. You know how computing capacity doubles every 18 months or so. So in a very short period of time, in about three years or so, you're going to be able to go out and buy for the price of $1,000 the entire computing capacity of a human brain. But of course, that's not all, because this is Moore's Law, which keeps doubling. By you know, 2050, you're going to be able to go out and buy the computing capacity worth $1,000, the entire computing capability of all humans on Earth. One of the most frequent questions I keep getting asked when I go talk with the boards is, hey, Tony, how do we make decisions about buying $1,000 computers and hiring people to run our company for the future? Right? And the reason that is happening, to tie all of this together back to digital transformation, is because, very simply, we're in the fourth industrial revolution. And unlike the previous industrial revolutions, whether it was steam or electricity or the internet, this one, one technology, digital, is eating every technology. So it is eating social technology, Facebook. It's eating manufacturing technology, the internet of things. It's eating, obviously, artificial intelligence and medical technologies and you know, so on and so forth. So the question then becomes, all right, what exactly is digital transformation in this case? Because if the fourth industrial revolution has only one definition, which is it is the same as digital disruption, then digital transformation, the only possible definition for that is that it is the rewiring of people, processes, and your entire systems for companies that are doing well in the third industrial revolution era to continue to exist and thrive in the fourth industrial revolution. That is the only logical definition of digital transformation. And the reason I bring all of that back together to ownership is when we talk about the need to transform our companies, our organizations, or our departments, you have to ask yourself the question, are you talking about just automation or are you talking about real transformation? And for real transformation in retail, the Carvanas or the you know, vending machines that spout gold and all that kind of stuff, that is a much bigger deal. And what you're going to have to do is essentially have that vision, and you're going to have to commit as leaders of the company, not bottom-up, top-down, to be able to transform. That's stage one. That is still stage one. That is still about creating the foundation. The next stage is called siloed, which is where in an enterprise you start to see magically small little groups. You know, it may be the finance function in a, in a country 
or one or two people in a small company who are starting to play with these really disruptive technologies. And there are two disciplines that are important there. One is to empower those people, and the second is to identify what are the leverage points that are absolutely essential for real transformation, not just for you know, what I call innovation theater. Again, in the interest of time, I'm gonna focus on one of them, which is digital empowerment. And this is where I have shamelessly learned from Google. You see, Google has this framework, has had it for a long time, which is called 70-20-10, which is you have 70% of our capacity, their capacity, dedicated to day-to-day -day operations, 20% on continuous improvement, and 10% on disrupting themselves. That's mind-boggling when you kind of think about it. Ask yourself, what percent of your time and your money do you spend on trying to disrupt yourself? Ask yourself, why would you even spend that 10%? By the way, the numbers don't have to be 70, 20, 10. They're a different industry. You know, in manufacturing and retail, the margins are not that big. At Procter & Gamble, I probably spent less than 1% Probably, you know, my ratio is probably more like 80 and then 19 and a half and half. But here's the thing. You need to have three separate buckets. And you need to have them because during industrial revolutions, normal continuous improvement is insufficient. No amount of tinkering with the horse carriage would have given you the internal combustion engine. And so when you talk about the second stage discipline being disruptive empowerment, you have to have dedicated capacity and resources, the 10, to have people look into what is happening. Because if you don't, you will be continuous improved to death. Let's move on to stage three. Stage three is when you know, it gets a little more exciting because this is when the company has recognized, hey, we're in the midst of a big change. I'm going to have a mandate that says, the company is going to digitize. This is what Jeff Immelt did at GE several years ago. But it's partially synchronized. You actually still don't have the entire organization rowing in the same direction. There are two disciplines that are important. One is effective change management. You know, are you talking about a burning platform where we, everybody has to change, otherwise it's not going to work? And then the second is, are all of your disruptive ideas sufficient to meet your goals? But here's the issue you're never gonna have enough money and enough time in order to do this. Also, the second issue is that it doesn't matter how many people and how many dollars you have, the rest of the world still has, you know, a thousand times, maybe a million times more resources and more money than you do. So the answer for stage three is always to build an ecosystem. Here's what I did at Procter & Gamble. I basically said, hey, you know, out of the, 15,000 or so people we have working on IT and shared services, let's take about 15. But these are senior people, you know, director level, associate director level people. And then I'm gonna invite our top five biggest IT services players. So the IBM and HPs and EY and Tata's and so on and so forth to put at, this, at their own cost some people, at least one person into this ecosystem. And then let's go out to the venture capitalists, the VCs, the top 10, the Andreessen's and Sequoia's, and I didn't need their money, we don't want their money, but we want access to their startups, the thousands of startups that have truly disruptive ideas. And you create this ecosystem because what you're doing is you're going to the startups and saying, I'm gonna give you a company to actually play with in terms of use cases. You're going to your IT vendors and saying, hey, I'm gonna give you an insight into what are some of the biggest disruptive ideas for my company 
And by the way, I'm not going to pay you to build all of this, but maybe I will give you the intellectual property of the 10x systems that we build by scaling the solutions that come out of the startups. This is an example of a win-win ecosystem. That's what's needed because you're never going to have all of the money and all of the resources that you need. Then it gets even more excited because at fully synchronized stage of digital transformation, you have been able to drive a sufficient strategy to rewire your business model into the fourth industrial revolution. However, you're still missing something, otherwise we wouldn't have stage five, which is you haven't changed the DNA of the organization. But let's stay at stage four. For you to be successful at that, you have to redefine what digital means. It cannot be just a few things that are owned by the IT function. And then, of course, you have to stay current. So let me give you an example of all of the major ideas that we worked on. And so here's a few that we worked on at Procter & Gamble. You know, we created artificial intelligence for accounts receivables claims management. Those of you that are in the retail, you understand what this is, um, which is manufacturers sell to retailers, retailers then pay, and then sometimes there's a dispute because you didn't get exactly the same money that you thought you were going to get. And so you open a dispute. And then, you know, large companies have hundreds of people all over the world in accounting trying to resolve those disputes. Except you ask yourself, why is this still being done by people? The data's got to be somewhere out there. Maybe we sold products worth $100, but the salesperson gave them a discount. Or maybe we sold and shipped cases for $100, but you know, a case fell off the truck or something happened at the bank. All of this is data. The data is in the ecosystem. And so we found an AI algorithm that was able to do this in real time, even as claims came in, was able to resolve more than about, you know, 90% of those disputes right there. So this is an example of a capability that exists that you should be using right now. Here's another one, call centers. And I'm not talking about, you know, the typical uh, chatbot kind of stuff, right? This is call centers where consumers call into a manufacturer's, you know, especially a complex one like Procter & Gamble call center with a variety of questions. Everything from, hey, can you tell me if this diethyl oxide methyl oxalate product in your shampoo is sustainably sourced? I mean, how on earth is the call center agent even going to know such a deep question? And of course, the next call is, hey, my baby's diaper is leaking, right? Can you help me? So what typically happens is the, the call center agents basically enter all of that data into a big Salesforce kind of system and then eventually get back to you. But again, this is a data problem. We had two AI algorithms. The first one did voice to text. So even as the voice was coming in, it was populating most of the fields in Salesforce. And just because we're a little crazy, our test was in China where we did Mandarin to English. The second algorithm reached out into the backend systems and found you know, as many of the answers as possible. It completely transforms the work of the call center agent in these locations. And again, that's being used in several locations. Another example I'd love to share with you is global import-export, right? So if you are importing a lot of product, you know, as a manufacturing company, let's say based in the US, you're importing product from Vietnam, what happens in the whole shipping process is absolutely nuts because there's about you know six or seven different parties, freight forwarders, customs, the, the ocean carrier itself, local trucks, you know, so on and so forth. 
And so you basically have a lot of leakage. We thought there were hundreds of millions of dollars worth of leakage for our global products, right? So what we did was we jumped on to an initiative that IBM and Maersk, the shipping company, had started about five years ago to put all of those transactions on blockchain. So pretty disruptive idea, right? But as I said earlier, we were a little crazy. So we said, hey, if all of that data is immutable and it's on blockchain, why are we still doing invoicing? Why do you still have people at your end wasting their time creating invoices and people on our side processing those invoices? Because if we know how much we should have paid you based on the contract, we know how much the fees were, and we all promise that that data is accurate in blockchain, we should eliminate invoices. So again, this was when I left PNG in, in, in test in 15 shipping lanes all over the world. And one other example I want to share with you is the oft you know, mentioned idea of you know, how to do a simple activity. Sometimes you have to basically go into 15 different systems. So new hire onboarding, you, know, you have to go to a security system to give them authentication at the gate. You have to go to the payroll system. You have to go to their IT procurement system and so on and so forth. The, the answer to that has been promised for at least a dozen years or so. But what we said is, hey, everybody, every system's using chatbots now. So how about if we create a super chatbot that doesn't try and change all of the backend systems, but this negotiates, right, with all of those. So all the chatbot says is employee ABC coming in, social security number, so and so, you know, joining date, so on and so forth. And off those dozens of chatbots go and make changes directly into the security system and, you know, so on and so forth, right? And there were many, many, many ideas like this. You know, I talked about planning and about disrupting travel and expense. Each of these had to be a $50 million idea. Each of these had to be a 10x, right? And the reason I mentioned this in the context of stage four is because there is no way on earth, even an ecosystem is going to drive that much of change. There is no IT organization in the world that's capable of doing all of this thing, running their day-to-day -day operations at the same time. The answer is you eventually have to make every part of the organization think and act disruptively, and everybody's got to play along, right? That's stage four. And eventually you get to, of course, stage five, which is then you know, this becomes the culture of the organization. And I'm going to share with you just one chart there. Uh, a chart that I love, which is called Martech's Law. And what Martech's Law says is that technology changes exponentially, but organizations change logarithmically. Now, actually, logarithmically is worse than linear because linear stays straight. Logarithmic graphs taper after some time. So the gap between the technical possibilities and your organization's DNA widens over time. So as leaders, we have to ask ourselves if we want to get to stage five. I know we keep getting all of those reasons like technology is not ready. But every year, every month that I delay getting into these disruptive ideas, that gap becomes bigger. That is essentially the reason why digital transformations fail. One is because people don't really understand what digital transformation is. They think it's a technology. They think it's artificial intelligence. No, it is applied technology to very specific use cases. Even today, there is no admin assistant that can be completely replaced by AI, but there is capability to take the calendaring function use case 
just as Winolo did five years ago, right? And that has essentially now become mainstream. And the second is the methodology that we use to implement digital transformation is taken from IT project management methodology, and that misses the disruptive, iterative nature of learning and having a portfolio of really disruptive ideas and organization change management. That is essential in a disruptive era. So retail is changing around us. It doesn't really matter whether you run a small shop with you know, half a dozen people, or it doesn't matter if you're the largest retailer in the world. You might have even achieved a one-time digital transformation by changing your business model by getting to stage four. However, whether or not you survive and thrive in the fifth stage, which is where this becomes the DNA on every person in your organization, is the question of the fourth industrial revolution. Will we be around? Will we rewire ourselves completely and totally? That is a question that I want you to ask yourself through the remainder of this seminar. Thank you very much. Thank you again for listening to Winning Retail. To find more episodes and subscribe to our newsletter, go to winningretailpodcast.com.